even putting the two hours of distance between my mother and myself in order to save my own life and have my own life. That resulted in many more phone calls that, you know, every day. And I would get sucked in and we would roll through life together in some sort of tumbleweed of fury and rage. And so people come in to me outside and they reduce us instantly to, are you aware of the fact that she says these things because it's a game for her? And if you're not careful, she is going to outlive you. Hi, everyone. This is the AgeWise Podcast. Your assumptions are going to be turned somewhat upside down. I was totally unfamiliar with the term caregiver. You really learn what you're capable of. I'm Jana Panaritis. What happens when a gay, middle-aged daughter who has never gotten along with her makeup-addicted former television singer, mother, is suddenly thrust into the role of her caregiver? Well, I'll bet some of you can imagine at least part of how this story goes. But, as we all know, every caregiver's story is unique. This one covers a lot of ground. Writer Alyssa Altman survived a traumatic childhood in 1970s New York and young adulthood living in the shadow of her flamboyant mother. Settled into a quiet life in Connecticut with her wife of nearly 20 years, Alyssa's life was turned upside down when her mother, Rita, fell and broke her ankle, leaving her completely dependent on Alyssa, her only child. Having escaped to Connecticut, Alyssa was now forced to revisit her complex relationship with her mother, this time through the prism of hands-on care. Alyssa's story is laid bare in her new book, Motherland, a memoir of love, loathing, and longing. Alyssa Altman is the critically acclaimed author of Poor Man's Feast, a love story of comfort, desire, and the art of simple cooking, and the James Beard award-winning blog of the same name. She's the author of Trafe, My Life as an Unorthodox Outlaw. Her work has appeared in O, The Oprah Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, The New York Times, and many other places. She's been anthologized in Best Food Writing six times, was a finalist for the Frank McCourt Memoir Prize. She has appeared live on stage at TEDx and elsewhere, and of course, she teaches. Alyssa teaches the craft of memoir, but today, she's here to talk about her book, Motherland. Alyssa Altman, welcome to the AgeWise Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So, this book... Uh, as I understand it, grew out of a year-long column you wrote for the Washington Post called Feeding My Mother. And back then you wrote that your mother's life, quote, revolves around remaining at all costs the skinny glamour puss she's been for most of her life. And your life revolves professionally and profoundly, as you wrote, around the very thing that terrorizes her, food. But this is not the book that you envisioned when you first sat down to write it on a snowy night in 2016, as you wrote, I think, at the back of the book. So how did you envision this book versus how it evolved? Well, I, you know, because my background is mostly in food, historically in food, and the, you know, my TED Talk uh, was about um, feeding and sustaining someone who, who was body dysmorphic and had a history of uh, body dysmorphia. And, you know, and then, you know, I had the, the year-long column, um, the Washington Post column. I assumed that the book going in was going to be told, our story was going to be told through the prism of the table, through the prism mm -hmm. of food. Right. And what I didn't 
really understand, what I didn't really get my brain around was the fact that nurturing and sustenance come in all sorts of different forms and they're not all edible. And my mother and I have been searching for ways to sort of nurture and sustain. I always search for ways to nurture and sustain her. She always searched for ways to nurture and sustain herself. And so there was very little food in it. A lot of the scenes in the book do take place at the table, but what I was really surprised at was the fact that the book is really focusing on caregiving of someone who is averse to it and resistant Uh to it. And that's another way to nurture and sustain. So I was really, I was really very, very surprised at the way the story unfolded. Hmm. It's great that you were so open to it unfolding that way, too, because... Yeah, I mean, I think memoirists, you know, I was talking to the wonderful memoirist and novelist Kate Christensen last night at Print Bookstore in Portland, Maine, and we were talking about the fact that, you know, when you are a memoirist, you know, in the, the most ideal situation is that you kind of have to get very, very quiet and step back and watch the story unfold and blossom and flower. And it's it's sort of like, a, you know, like peeling an onion layer after layer after layer. And, you know, I, I suppose I didn't really have a choice in the way it was written. It was almost as if the story told itself after her accident. One of the things that really struck me about this book was not only are you an only child, but you really didn't know your mother as she defined herself until after you were born. And then your dad made this prophetic statement, someday she'll be your responsibility. You'll never be able to give her what she wants. I tried, but someday she will be your job. Right. Give us a sense of what you were walking into in terms of having to care for her. Well, you know, I think that I was acting as her caregiver long before her accident. My mother, she is an only child. I am an only child. She lost her second husband in 1997, and I felt profoundly responsible to her and to her care. Mm -hmm. That said, I was also, for lack of a better way uh, to describe it, enormously codependent and addicted to her. We were addicted to each other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had this crazy, acrimonious, difficult relationship. And at the same time, we had to be together. We had to see each other. We sort of thrived on the fighting and the carrying on and the yelling. And, you know, if you see movies, there are, you know, big screen versions of the story, like, uh, you know, terms of endearment. And, you know, I always say that Motherland is like postcards from the edge with Jews and lipstick, you know. (laughs) Um, And and it's really sort of true. But, you know, I feel as though our roles reversed very early on. I Uh was in effect, her mother, and she was my child. And long before the accident happened, I felt responsible for her care, her general care, uh, for her needs. My mother also suffers from narcissistic personality disorder. And so, you know, just this morning, I was talking to somebody about needs versus wants. Mm -hmm. You know, when a senior citizen needs something versus wants something, you can apply that 
to a child, to a Uh five-year-old, a cranky five-year-old who wants what they want. They want the new toy in the toy store. They want the new sneakers. But what they need is they need to be kept safe. They need to be fed. They need to be sustained. And so our relationship was that situation writ large. And then when she had the accident, that opened up yet another more practical layer of Mm -hmm. questions about insurance and money and who was going to be her daily caregiver and how is that going to work. And so I've sort of lived with the two sides to the same coin, and it changes day by day, minute by minute. Yeah. In terms of practicality, one of the first signs of that in the book was immediately after she fell and you and your wife, Susan, had to rush to New York and you were in a hospital and the admitting nurse asked for your mother's papers and said they wouldn't touch her until she signs a directive. I wonder if you talk about that process of getting a directive because your mother had nothing, right? Yeah, it was. It was just really remarkable. I mean, if you go to an emergency room or, you know, even if you're not a senior citizen, you go to an emergency room and you invariably have to sign papers that allow the physicians to do whatever it is they need to do to help you. And when a hospital is faced with a woman who is in her 80s, they definitely won't go near her <laughs> yeah, right. without papers. And mm-hmm. so years earlier, when Susan and I had first gotten together and my father had passed away suddenly as a result of an accident in 2002, Susan and I were, I think I was 39 and Susan was 49. After you know everything had settled, we went to our attorney and we said, we want to drop a will and we want to drop all of the various things that will allow us to make decisions on each other's behalf Mm -hmm. and, you know, that will keep us safe. This is part of being an adult, Uh (laughs) what we do, (laughs) you know. At some point. um, (laughs) At some point, right. And, I mean, it is distasteful and it is unfortunate, but it's something that we have to do, (laughs) you know. And it's right. And it's much worse if you don't have it. So when my father passed, I I, um, broached the issue with my mother and I said, you know, do you have a will. And I could see like the top of her head just pop right off. I mean, she just lost it and was furious. How dare I ask her such a thing? And I was trying to um, hasten her demise, as Uh she put it. So fast forward all these years and the backpedal for a minute, you know, she ultimately did have a will drawn up, but she called an entertainment lawyer to oh, do it. Right. And yeah, and, <laughs> and so the guy like downloaded the general internet will form right. and like never had it notarized, charged her an arm and a leg for it. But, you know, my mother's filing system was comprised of about half a dozen gigantic shopping bags sort of strewn all over her apartment with bank statements and sheet music because my mother was a singer. And so the materials that she had, what little she had, was in one of those bags. And we just didn't have the time or the inclination to go Uh sifting through. So, you know, here she was in the hospital with an ankle that was basically exploded. She broke all the bones in one ankle and broke her other foot at the same time. Uh And so the hospital said, you know, we need her papers. And I wound up having to call our attorney in Connecticut and having him draw up the New York State papers for her. 
faxing them to the hospital, finding the notary public in the hospital the morning before her surgery, it was a Sunday, and having her sign in the presence of, you know, witnesses and the notary, the various things that would allow her to be fixed and to be, you know, restored. But it was a crazy, crazy conversation and one that I will never forget. And it's practicality gone down a really bad road. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And walking was such a big part of your mother's life is. So, you know, I alluded to your mother's background in the introduction, but I wonder if you could fill that out a little bit for people. Who was your mother before even you were born? And how does she identify herself? My mother identifies herself first and foremost as a singer, as a performer. Mm -hmm. My mother was gifted with this really astonishingly wonderful singing voice, even as a child. I mean, so she was three years old when she started singing and was uh, singing on radio the days before television. Mm -hmm. And she sang on radio she won a bunch of performance awards. And then with the advent of television, she was on a television show in the late 50s called The Galen Drake Show. And she was, in effect, the sort of Vicki Lawrence of her time. She was the girl singer who uh, was kind of used as a singing prop, uh-huh. uh, if you will. But she was also at the Copacabana for a season, um, uh-huh. not as a Copa girl, but as a featured performer. Mm-hmm. And She was offered a Columbia record contract when she was 19 years old, and she was single, and her parents said, absolutely not, it's going to require you to be on tour, so you can't do that. And so I think that there was a lot of resentment and anger, and, you know, this is who she was, and if if somebody cuts off the lifeline to your identity, you know, that's something you live with for the rest of your life, and so... She went from singing to modeling, and she was a fur model in New York City for many, many years, and ultimately stopped when she met my father and I came along. But the singing was always there, and so she's beautiful and tall and thin and lithe and, you know, has the proverbial model body, even to this day, Mm -hmm. and... She's the kind of person, you know, she could wear a burlap sack and look fabulous. And uh-huh. She can, uh-huh. and even now. And But, you know, when I was growing up, there was just like the fact of my mother being a singer was sort of mythic. And family parties, family weddings, she would always step up and be asked to sing and be asked to perform. And she would turn into this other person who was gone before I was born. I I had never seen her on television. And that's really what I grew up with, you know, this otherworldly person as my mother. And it was like, how am I even remotely related to this person? No idea. And I still ask that question every day. (laughs) (laughs) And she she never ceased to forget to remind you how much she gave up, which must have been so hard to hear. Over and over, especially if you don't have a real context for who she was in your own memory bank. That's right. And, you know, she she would never tell me what, and this is a part of the story, 
she would never tell me what she gave up. She always posited it as a question. Do you know what I gave up for you? Do you have any idea what I gave up for you? Mm-hmm. And in the book, you know, I'm not, I won't give it away, but there's any number of things that she gave up. And I, you know, I leave it to my reader to really interpret that and to try and understand what exactly she was saying. Mm-hmm. And it was very difficult, you know, very, very difficult feeling as though I owed her. I owed her something that could never be paid back to her. Yeah. You know, that was very challenging, very challenging. Yeah. When your mom was in rehab, you had a, a hospital social worker named Brittany, and this was very moving. You talk about the irregular mark beneath your left breast. You were supposed to be a twin. I hope I'm not giving away too much here, but I was so moved when you wrote, Brittany is the daughter my mother should have had. She is the twin. Could you right. talk a little bit about that and your sense of yourself reflected through this other person who you thought should have been your mom's daughter? Or the twin. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. You know, I. It's a funny thing. I mean, I said this in my TED talk, where it's the sort of the ha ha, the punchline, the joke. You know, that mm-hmm. my mother is uh, fearful of food and has had a terribly body dysmorphic relationship to food for her her whole life, and has fought anorexia and you know various other eating disorders. And, you know, she winds up with a short, chubby food writer for a daughter. And, <laughs> you know, and my mother is this sort of hyper-heterosexual glam queen, yeah. you know, and, and she winds up with a lesbian as a daughter. And so, and I always say, you know, that the universe works in funny ways. And I think that for years, I mean, right after I came out, she believed that I was, quote unquote, doing it just to upset her. And in fact, you know, I tried to explain to her that, you know, I knew that I was different. I didn't have words for it. And having words for it at three years old would have been enormously (laughs) inappropriate. But I knew that I was different when I was three years old. And when I talk to my gay friends and friends who are non-binary, they all say the same thing. They all say, yes, I knew I was different when I was very, very young. I felt like I was not you know, like everybody else and so on and so forth. So that was always our kind of running joke that here is this hyper heterosexual glam queen, mm-hmm. skinny, and I and she winds up with a you know, a, a lesbian food writer as a daughter. But, you know, I would look around me at the same time and I would see friends of mine who were much more like my mother. And I would say, oh, Lisa's the daughter my mother should have had, and ha-ha, and then, you know, that's the joke. And Mm -hmm. in fact, it is really quite heartbreaking. And so when we were at the hospital, and, you know, my mother was there for a long time before she went to rehab, and she had this social worker who came in to see her, and this woman was like chipped out of the same mold as my mother, uh-huh. um, you know, with the makeup and the hair and beautiful and Pilates every day and long and lithe. And they would sit and look at magazines, you know, fashion magazines together and look at makeup colors together. And finally, you know, one day I just sort of stood off to the side and watched them. And I thought, oh, my God, this is the flip side. This is the B side to my, mm-hmm. you know, to my life. Mm-hmm. This is what my mother should have had. And, you know, there was a fair amount of self-loathing that goes along with that, Mm -hmm. of course. And 
you know, it was very, very difficult to see. I, in, in, as you, uh, you mentioned, I um, opened the book with the revelation that I had this little mark under my left breast at the top of my ribcage. And my father said to me, you know, that was supposed to be your twin, and that's probably all that's left of her. Mm-hmm. And I grew up believing that, you know, maybe that's the person, that was the daughter my mother was meant to have, and maybe that is the person who would have eased my mother's yearning and her need. And of course, it's taken me, you know, I'm 56 years old now, it's taken me 56 years and three memoirs to realize that, in fact, nothing could ease my mother's yearning. And people who suffer from narcissistic personality disorder the way she suffers, their need bucket has a hole in it. And, you know, she turns to makeup and she turns to fashion and she turns to music, to anything that will reflect her back to herself. I mean, it's the story of Narcissus, you know, um, mirror her back to herself. Mm-hmm. And that's really at the core of the book is the realization that I couldn't fill that need bucket. I couldn't be the thing that would make her happy because that's not part of her makeup. And it is part of her illness. Mm-hmm. Wow. Alyssa, this is kind of switching gears, but nutrition is such a big factor in how well seniors age and whether they become frail, etc. Has your mom's attitude toward food changed at all since the accident? Absolutely not. Oh, my God. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, no, no. Not at all. And, wow. You know, when, well, when I started thin. writing... Oh, my God. She is, she is real thin. She's probably... 112, 113 pounds at this point. Oh, wow. And, um, and how tall you know, when she? she's all, she's, she's five, four now. Uh-huh. Um, you know, she started out certainly when I was born, she was probably five, seven. Uh-huh. And when I started writing the Washington Post column, it was really about trying to feed somebody who will not be fed, trying to feed a senior citizen who will not be fed. And the mm-hmm. fact that And I said this on my TED Talk, if you pick up any of the big, glossy food magazines that we all know and love, um, and you flip through them, or you go onto any of the great food blogs that are out there, there are no senior citizens in them at all. Mm -hmm. There are no senior citizens shown enjoying, you know, being around a table with other people. It's just maybe around Christmas and the holidays, you'll see like the person who's supposed to be the grandparent. So the whole point of writing the column and also doing the TED Talk was to start to really open up the conversation that would bring senior citizens to the American table, bring them into the current food lexicon that we share nationally. And in in writing the column, I had to really sort of revisit my attempts at feeding my mother and the understanding that I could fill up her refrigerator, and I do fill up her refrigerator on a regular weekly basis. Um, you do? Oh, But, wow. like, I do, yeah. And Does anything get I eaten? Will, <laughs> um, you know, she will freeze as much as she can possibly freeze uh-huh. for another day. Uh-huh. And, you know, I'll call her and say, you know, Mom, what did you have for dinner? And uh-huh. she'll say, oh, I had some chicken and Brussels sprouts. And the next you know, two days later, I'll arrive and I'll open the refrigerator door and I'll look at the chicken and I recognize the scrapings of the tines <laughs> of a fork uh-huh. and, you <laughs> know, so the sort of not upon Brussels sprout. And to her, when she says, oh, I had chicken and vegetables, 
that's what she means. When I say I have chicken and vegetables, it means that I've probably had a quarter of a chicken and, you know, a vat of vegetables. (laughs) Right. So I think a lot of it for her and a lot of it for many senior citizens, a lot of the problem stems from issues of isolation. Yeah. And food for many senior citizens is nothing more than fuel. And it reminds them eating alone reminds them, in fact, that they are alone. Yeah. And so, um, and that's, yeah, yeah, and that is very, it is very, very common among seniors to eat less and to not enjoy eating because they are alone. You know, with my mother, it's more complicated because my mother believes that food is the enemy, that food will make her fat. And if she's fat, and she can't be a model, and she can't be, you know, and when I say fat, I mean, I say that I'm using a hanging quotes, you know, I'm doing little finger right. quotes. <laughs> she views herself, you know, at 112 pounds as fat, as yeah, heavy. Right. So I can fill her refrigerator until it's impossible to close the door, and she won't eat. And so that's a significant issue. Mm-hmm. She lives with a full-time caregiver now, Dora. Is Dora still with her? No, Dora's no longer with her, which is probably, uh, I mean, Dora was a godsend. Dora was an absolute angel on earth. She, for listeners, tell tell us who Dora is. Yeah. Yeah. When my mother uh, was returning home to her apartment in New York, we had a full-time caregiver literally fall into our laps. And an old friend of mine, her father had passed away. And the caregiver who had lived with him for four years was looking for another full-time job. Mm -hmm. And so there was the connection that, you know, we made to this person through my friend's family. And Dora moved in. And as I said, she was an absolute angel on earth. And my mother hated her from the minute she walked into the apartment. And that's also very common. You know, it's a loss of privacy. It's sure. the issue of having a stranger live with you, someone who who you don't know. Mm-hmm. And many, you know, many adult children give in to that, or many adult children who don't have the financial means to pay a live-in will move in with a parent and give up their professional lives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've known many, many people and friends of mine who've done that, and you know, we were able to cobble together Dora's salary, and she lived with my mother for seven months. And my mother, since that time, now has a caregiver twice a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, it should be more than that, but two days a week only is what she will agree to <laughs> for now. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, this person is, you know, is a godsend and a blessing. And it also enables me to continue on with my professional life in a different state. And it allows me to maintain my boundaries with my mother, which are hard won. That's under- uh, an very, understatement. <laughs> very hard won. Uh, exactly. And yeah, yeah. So she lives full time in Manhattan. And how old and is she now? She will be 84 in October. 84. And okay. right. And by telling you that, my mother, if she ever hears this, she will find me and like hunt me down um, because I've revealed her age, and then and then she'll find you. Um, and and <laughs> because my you know my mother tells people she's sixty five. 
And I say to her, Mom, you know, my wife is 66, Mom, uh-huh. you know, and, uh, <laughs> and on, she just now. doesn't, it doesn't register with her at all. Yeah. Oh, oh my <laughs> God. I really love the passage where the Medicaid examiners, et cetera, came in. It, it gives an outsider perspective of this team of people who want to help. They see Rita for who she is. And in a way, I feel like you get a different perspective on your mother and yourself based on things that they say and tell you. Um, Dora right. telling you, you fall for her right. games every time. Right. Well, that must have been a relief for you, in a way, to have some right. folks right. paying attention. Well, yeah, <laughs> it is really an interesting thing when an outsider throws open the window and says, no, 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 this is who you really are. And this is how the world sees you. And this is how the world sees her. Uh And I mentioned earlier that, you know, my mother and I suffered from very and continue to, I mean, it is like being someone in sort of like active addiction. I mean, we are completely addicted to each other. Uh And if I don't hear from her at a certain point every day, I start to kind of twitch a little bit. And if she doesn't hear from me um, X number of times a day, she starts to twitch and she gets upset. So we, we have these sort of physiological responses mm-hmm. to distance and boundaries. And so if you were, would envision like a tumbleweed, you know, we sort of roll through life together that mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. And even putting the two hours of distance between my mother and myself in order to save my own life and have my own life that resulted in many more phone calls that, you know, every day and my mother's crankiness and acrimony and resentment and all of those things. And I would get sucked in and we would roll through life together in some sort of tumbleweed of fury and rage. And so these people come in from the outside and they reduce us instantly to, <laughs> are you aware of the fact that she says these things because it's a game for her? Yeah. And this is your language. This is how you communicate. And, you know, it's not normal and it's not healthy. And if you're not careful, she is going to outlive you. And, you know, one of the nurse practitioners who comes to visit her that day actually says those words to us, yeah. says those words to me. And it was the first time that someone looked at me and basically said, you know, you are in your 50s and you are giving this woman every ounce of energy that you can give her and you're going to have to be careful because if you're not, she could outlive you. And then, you know, what will your life have been, really? And, you know, is it enough to love someone without giving them everything? Mm-hmm. And that's a question that I ask throughout the book. Well, I don't want to alarm you, but the reality is 30% of caregivers die before their care recipients. Yeah. <laughs> so watch I, that, I, 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 please. <laughs> yeah, I'll keep, an, I'll keep an eye on that. Thank you. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's, it's, you know, it's you for know, all kinds of reasons. Like they're distracted, they're not paying attention, things happen, and they disregard their own health for lots of different reasons. But it's pretty alarming. Mm-hmm. It, you know, 30% is a huge number. Yeah. And people are certainly living longer. I mean, we all know that. And everybody's living longer. So it's not only just, the, you know, the seniors 
and the senior parents, it's right. the caregivers that are living longer. Right. And, and somebody said something to me the other day, uh, you know, during an interview, of, she does a great podcast called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And her mom is in, I want to say her 70s. Mm-hmm. And she said something to me along the lines of the fact that, I mean, if my mother lives into her hundreds, I could be in my 80s mm-hmm. and caring for her. Right. And it's when you that say happens. something like that, mm-hmm. it happens. And it's unbelievable. And mm-hmm. how does how do you manage that? How do people do that? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Not well. It's very fortuitous <laughs> that your partner slash wife, Susan, had experience of her own with caregiving, right? Yeah. And her family background yeah. was really fascinating. Tell us a little bit about how maybe her experience helped you. Yeah, well, my wife's family, her mother was the youngest of 11 children, you know, big New England Catholic farming family where the kids worked, you know, on the farm from the minute they could stand upright, basically. And all of the women in the family outlived the men for a variety of reasons. So Susan's mother lived to a couple of days before her 95th birthday. Hmm. She was home the entire time. But I watched Susan go through the caregiver trials where, you know, when it was right around 2013, my first book was out. I was on book tour for it. Susan came with me for part of it. And her mother had had a heart attack. And we hired somebody to, you know, be with her and to stay with her. And her mother waited until we were in Berkeley, California, where I was doing a book event. And uh, Susan's phone rang and it was the neighbor saying that her mother had fired the caregiver while Susan was on the other side of the country. Um, Strategic. (laughs) Right. Totally, you know, not only willful, (laughs) like a child, Uh but strategic. You know, my kid is going to be 3,000 miles away, unable to do anything. Uh There isn't anybody else. And so we raced back and we hired a new caregiver went back out on book tour, that caregiver was taken out of the house in an ambulance, having suffered a case of stress-related Meniere's disease. And, you know, when Susan's mother at this point was 91, I want to say 90, 91, and finally we said, fine, if you want to try and live alone, you know, okay, and we're giving you a month and we'll see how it works. And of course, it didn't work, and she confused her medication and tried to drive and to do all of those things, and we ultimately had to hire somebody to live with her full-time. And the last few months were angry, and she didn't want anybody there, and she still mm-hmm. thought she could be by herself. And mm-hmm. as grown children of seniors, these are stories we hear over and over and over Mm -hmm. again. And I'm convinced that in the best of circumstances, it's not easy. In the worst of circumstances, it can be very, very traumatic for all parties. Mm -hmm. But in the best of circumstances, it can be just very difficult. And I know very few people whose parents are happy 
to have a caregiver or happy to be in an assisted living facility. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they want their old lives back. Yeah. And I understand that. I get that. Sure. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know that you were a serious athlete when you were younger. You played a lot of tennis. And since leaving New York, you started running. Are you still doing that? Um, I was running until I had a really bad back injury last year. Mm-hmm. What sort of self-care I, are you uh, doing? That, that's oh, what that was leading goodness. to. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. The inevitable self-care The question, inevitable right. question. So, right. So the inevitable self-care question, I am right now getting back into running. I've never been a runner, as you said. I was a very athletic kid, and I was, even as, you know, as recently as 20 years ago, I was a ranked squash player in New York City. Wow, and cool. Very active gear and And I discovered that when you move out of the city and you don't have to walk everywhere and you have to drive everywhere, it takes a lot of work Mm -hmm. to maintain Mm -hmm. any kind of active life. You know, Mm -hmm. you have to drive to the gym, you have to drive to the track, you have to drive everywhere. So I started running. I was never a runner. I'm sort of like a wannabe runner. And <laughs> and I discovered that I really liked it. And then I had a terrible injury and, and wound up having, uh, you know, spinal injections and all of that kind of stuff oh, and, and ill-advised. But I mean, I, they work oh. for some people, I gather. But And I stopped at one point and I was like, okay, you know, what does your body really need? What does it really need? And during the time, the really acute period where I was caring for my mom and trying to make sure that all of her needs were met, I really put my own self-care and my own physical needs on the shelf. I just ignored them and pretty much gave everything that I could give to my mother and her care. And so it caught up with me and it does catch up with you, Mm -hmm. you know, and I had a yoga practice for a long time that was Hmm. really, really wonderful, Mm -hmm. and I'd like to get back to that. I discovered how important regular body work is, so I do regular massage probably once or twice a month. Mm -hmm. I have a spectacular acupuncturist, and I am, as we speak, trying to reevaluate the role of wine in my life. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's, a, you know, that's another thing that a lot of caregivers will say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. you know, uh-huh. ro- you know, rosé all day, that uh-huh. kind of thing. Um, <laughs> so trying to sort of, re- I was going to say rejigger, but that would not be a good choice of words. Um, <laughs> <I like it. laughs> so, yeah, so that's something that uh, has been it's a process. Kind of in process. It's a process. It's a process. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. 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 Well, I don't want to give away the ending, but I feel like I really earned that ending when I got through that book <laughs> because it <laughs> it feels lighter and I was so happy and it was so moving, really, really moving. But I'm not going to say anything more about the ending except that um, <laughs> I feel like I earned it. What do you want readers to take away from this book, Alyssa? Um, you know, I want readers to take away and without being trite or canned or any of those things, that the possibility for, if not healing, then understanding is there even in the most impossible of relationships. I think that for me, it was, I don't know that I would say it was a gift, but I had as a writer, I had to do what most memoirists do when they write, which is by necessity, I had to step back from my own story in order to write it from a narratorial standpoint. And 
in doing that, I simultaneously saw myself and my mother, you know, as two characters in, mm-hmm. you know, for lack of a better way to describe it, you yeah, know, two sure. characters in literature, yeah. you know, moving through time together. And I was able to see her with all of her, not only her faults, but the fact of her as an amazing survivor, which she is, yeah, and myself as a survivor. Mm-hmm. And that was a real gift. So the understanding that the possibility for, you know, reevaluation and understanding people you think that you will never understand and never get along with, it's there. It's always there. Sometimes you have to get really quiet and back away from it and listen and look closely at it and remove yourself from the center of it. And that was a huge, huge gift, huge gift. Mm-hmm. One of the things that occurred to me was that on this particular book tour, you're probably meeting people or having exchanges with people that are quite different from those that you met on your previous book tour. Are you getting caregivers coming up to you and sharing stories? Oh, yeah. I mean, we, when I was in Washington, it, actually, no, it was Books and Books in Carl Gables in Florida. Mm-hmm. And the event manager actually had to shut down the questions because everybody has a mother or everybody has a father, and everybody, you know, is a mother or a father or not, but everyone wanted to talk about issues of caregiving and emotional issues and practical issues, and, you know, everyone wanted to tell a story of, you know, having a difficult relationship with a mom, and it's such a universal truth that we all work at our relationships with our mothers, whether we do it now or we did uh, if they're past. And I think the most interesting thing for me, though, was the fact that I've been speaking to very culturally diverse groups of people. So mm-hmm. there was an, uh, an Asian woman in one of my readings who uh, raised her hand and said, I have to take my mother in. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what I'm going to do, and I don't know how I'm going to survive it. And when she said, well, that's what we do, I thought... I could say to her, well, you have other choices, but in fact, she doesn't. That is what mm-hmm. culturally requires that she does, and, mm-hmm. and she will do it, and mm-hmm. she will find ways to survive it and to come out on the other side of it. So people of every background, every color, every socioeconomic background, and that has been, talk about a gift for me. I mean, that's been really, really wonderful. I have learned as much from the people I've spoken to as they might have from the book. Wow, that sounds like a great place to end. Do you uh, have any last thoughts that you would like to leave with folks before we close? You know, I think two things. I think that caregiving, and this is probably something that's said a lot but cannot be repeated enough, caregiving is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And self-care is very important. Boundary setting is very important. And if you can't care for yourself, then you can't care for anyone else. And that's immensely important. That and the fact that you may be surprised at where the role of caregiver takes you. As I said, you know, as you you opened our conversation with, I did not expect my relationship with my mother to change in the way that it did. Mm. How about you? How did it change you? You've kind of alluded to this throughout the conversation, but maybe you can put it a different way. Yeah, you know, my goal in life was to get as far away 
from someone who was the source of trauma, lifetime trauma for me, just to get away from her and to save myself. And, you know, that was the, you know, the fight or flight instinct kicking in in me. And all of this time, you know, all of these years later, uh, it's been three years since her accident. What I have come away with is, I think, a lot more patience, Mm -hmm. far better boundaries, 14 phone calls in one day is not normal under any circumstance. <laughs> it's just not. It's never okay. What are you down to now? Um, <laughs> we're down to, you know, we're down to two. Oh, and wow. um, I call, you know, I call her in the morning to make sure that she's up, that she's eaten, that she hasn't fallen in the night, that, you know, all of those things are okay. And then I call her usually at night just to make sure that, you know, she's had a good day and make sure that she has everything she needs and I let her give me the recap of her day and that's what we do but you know it was 14 calls at one point and that was my normal you know that was my okay so boundaries I had to relearn boundaries and here I am at 56 years old and I relearned them and they are pretty much rock solid for me now and that's fine and that's the way it should be. We've been speaking with writer Alyssa Altman about her new book, Motherland, a memoir of love, loathing, and longing, a vivid, emotional journey through the turbulent waters of Alyssa's shared life with her mother and the mutual frenetic obsession that has defined their relationship. We'll have links on the AgeWise website to Alyssa's book and all the ways you can connect with her. But if you want to dive right in and get a flavor of her writing, check out Alyssa's website, which is AlyssaAltman.com. That's E-L-I-S-S-A-A-L-T. T-M-A-N.com. Alyssa, thank you so much for being on the show and for this amazing, powerful, colorful book, Motherland, a memoir of love, loathing, and longing. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you like this show, please tell your friends about it and subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced and edited by me. I'm on Twitter at Jana Panaritis, and as always, you can leave comments on the AgeWise website. That's A-G-E-W-Y-Z dot com. The AgeWise podcast is distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk radio network. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.